Welcome to the Joan Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Vittengel. Joan is a place of truth and connection, a place to discuss mental health, trauma, struggle, and the many difficulties brought to us in life. Through my own journey, I struggled to open up with others about my difficult life experiences, but once I did, I began to see that everyone is on their own journey in one way or another. This podcast has taught me more than I could have imagined, but most importantly, it has taught me that vulnerable connection through storytelling is one of the most powerful ways that we heal ourselves, heal each other, and thus heal the world. I am so honored that the guests of this show have trusted me to bring their stories to you. And so I hope you enjoy the second season of Joan. Today, I'm talking to Kim Beekman, who I mentioned quite a bit in my first episode. She um, She's a teacher of mine. I met her over the summer through my Aunt Laura. Um, quick note about the episode. The first four minutes or so, my side didn't record. We actually had to cut the conversation and I had to call her back. So just so you know, uh, I don't know if it's going to be that obvious, but I just want to throw that in there. Um, yeah, so she's a teacher of mine. Uh, she, uh, we, we, we talk about her traumatic upbringing, her, um, her bulimia, which she developed at 13 years old, um, the attempted sexual abuse by her father, um, her journey into spiritual work, manifesting her husband, um, becoming a mother as someone who didn't want kids. Um, I really love Kim because she really does an amazing job of bridging spirituality to everyday life. Um, which is something that I personally really resonate with. And she just really embraces both her divinity and her humanity. Um, this is a really very educational episode. And this is the one episode that I forgot to ask him um, to tell us a story about a woman. So um, at the end of the episode, I'm actually going to tell a story about a woman who I feel um, I, it's very important for me to tell her story. And I'll explain why. So enjoy the episode, have a listen to the end, and I hope you love it. Well, I guess I would start by just introducing myself as a woman, as a mother, as a wife. Um, You know, those are like, when I look at my day-to-day, being a mother of three daughters has been probably one of the most profound spiritual awakening aspects of my life really because I didn't want to screw them up like my like my family lineage so it was a job that I took pretty seriously especially as someone who swore they would never have kids so I would say my three daughters are like my fast track to enlightenment um, and I'm I'm married and have been with my husband for over 22 years which I really thought I would be alone most of my life. So in that sense, you know, I called, he was my first law of attraction, attraction. Um, He was the first person my heart called into my life. Um, And so through my introspective journey, I eventually, if we fast forward to what I'm doing now, I'm an Ayurvedic wellness counselor, yoga teacher trainer. I train yoga teachers, I train them how to meditate and how to teach meditation. Um, I I do trauma work with folks. I developed a model called the inner alignment system where we do soul retrieval work and really access trauma in the physical body so that we can 
um, realign people back into the radiant hearts that they are. But often we're covered with all this shadowy old stuff from our childhoods that really dictate how we experience day-to-day life. So, um, so yeah, I've developed this work of working with people's trauma. I love the deep, dark, shadowy stuff. <laughs> I think it's fun and interesting. So, so yeah, so that's me. That was kind of plagued with alcoholism, drug addiction, and narcissism, I would say. Uh, a crazy, wild and crazy Italian family. And um, the whole emphasis in my family was around how you looked, how skinny you are, how beautiful you were, how your ability to attract men into your life. Um, my parents divorced at a young age and things got really chaotic for me around um, 13 years old. And it was at that point that I developed bulimia. So I was depressed, I was bulimic, and then for the first time in my life, I was skinny. So I was kind of happily disordered in that way. But I had so many kind of messed up belief systems about my value and my worth and who I was. Um, And there was a point between 13 and 15, I was bulimic. At 15 years old, bulimic for two years and I have my head over the toilet really for the last time. And I felt something inside of me, like a soul desire. Although at that point I wasn't spiritual enough to know what was happening, but it was like, I cannot fricking do this ever again. It was a soul decision. It was like a hard stop. It was like no more. And that day I checked myself into a psychiatric hospital, which luckily from the mental health perspective during that time, which was 30 years ago, there was inpatient care for people with eating disorders. And so um, I checked myself in through using Medicaid, you know, public assistance and um, was there for 99 days. And so I'm lucky to say that my, healing journey started when I was 15 years old. And it started because I was like, I can't live like life like this. I knew I had a future beyond like, like (laughs) circling the drain, you know? And, um, so yeah, so it was at that point that, you know, inpatient gave me, I think a lot of band-aids, important band-aids to be able to, communicate and to be able to at least know what I was feeling and be able to articulate it. And that was important for me at that point, at that stage. I mean, at 15, you don't even have a developed prefrontal cortex, right? Like you can't even, you don't even have a developed thinking brain. So, um, so it's been a 30 year journey from there. (laughs) Wow. So what, okay. So before we go on from there, what, um, were there any childhood wounds or what was kind of your home life? Like what was your relationship like with your parents? Was there anything that you feel like had sort of been the precursor to the bulimia? Oh yeah. Everything was the precursor. I think the, um, you know, the emphasis on how I looked, um, when I, you know, I, I developed early, I got my period at nine. And so my body developed, um, and was very thick. I mean, I was very overweight as a child. 
um, because I was in a family of like serious dieters. Do you know what I mean? So they would gorge themselves and then diet it off. And so, um, so there was that, there was, you know, the, uh, amount of control. A lot of people with eating disorders have a lot of control put upon them and they're just trying to maintain some essence of control in their lives. So my parents, one of my parents was extremely narcissistic and controlling. And, um, that was really hard. It was, um, it was abusive and it was kind of like living in hell, <laughs> So that was really hard. Um, my sister and I were very close, but she left. She got out of Dodge as, as quickly as she could. And so I was extremely lonely. And um, and all I had were those around me who were really addicted to alcohol or sedatives. or So there wasn't a whole lot of like stability in life. And I the, the lucky thing was, you know, with a narcissistic parent, usually there's one kid who's really loved and adored and one who's like the black sheep. I was mm-hmm. lucky enough to be the one that was adored, which everyone wants to be that kid in the narcissistic family, except the fact that the um, sometimes someone with narcissistic personality disorder will kind of, I have this visual, it's like they get their talons <laughs> into your solar plexus, into your will. And so there's a really kind of dark cord that's between you and the parent that you spend your the rest of your life kind of trying to unhook from yourself. So so there's there was a lot of that subtle subtleness, but also um there was love there. Like I was blessed to have some love there. Mm. Okay. And did they, were they aware, were your parents aware of your bulimia? Yeah, they knew about it, but they weren't doing anything about it. So um, that's actually a really cool question because really what that did, because they weren't saving me, I had to save myself because no one else was going to do it. Same thing happened when I got out of the hospital. So fast forward a bit. I'm an independent, fiery woman. Like to pretend like I don't have any responsibility in this dynamic is not true because I was a pain in the ass teenager. I was not easy. I mean, I got straight A's, but I was really willful and I would slam my door and be like, screw you. And now that I have three daughters, three teen daughters, I look back and I'm like, oh, this is my karma. (laughs) Right. So I was really willful. And luckily, you know, that will served me because um, at 16, when my mother and I were just banging heads, I was like, she was like, you know, just leave, go live with your father. And I was like, okay, I'll go live with my father. Screw you. I checked out of school, moved in with him, but he was a drug addict and alcoholic and eventually tried to have sex with me. And so it was at that point that I was like, oh, I'm not safe. So at that point, I actually um, started working three jobs and I was 17 and living on my own as a junior in high school and just working three jobs. Yeah. Um, And just putting myself through school. And luckily, I always had an open third eye. So I could always have this vision of myself beyond it, beyond this you know, craziness. And I saw myself successful academically, like career successful. 
So I got myself into college and I started running eating disorder groups for other people. I started working for the church. I was a Eucharistic minister. And then I started becoming the program director at the Syracuse University Church. And like I wasn't a particularly religious person, but it was just was giving me a place where I could find some level of spiritual community that even at that young age, I knew that I needed because I didn't have anything else. Like I had a very disjointed family. So that's where I think the seeds of the spirituality started. And I was one of those Catholics that didn't need, I didn't need to believe everything that they were saying. So I would be like, yep, I like the Jesus thing and I like the community thing, but your whole going to hell thing. Yeah, I don't buy that. So I'm not going take that thank you very much and so luckily because I was so defiant I was able to be like picking and choosing what I wanted from my religious experience okay wow yeah I didn't know things about your I'm just like processing everything that you just told me yeah it's a lot right like this desire to help people heal trauma is really because I, I overcame such adversity and luckily my path started young. So it's been wow. 30 years since I'm 45 now. It's been 30 years since I started this. I just can't imagine. I dated someone in high school actually who was living on his own and taking care of himself. And I was always like, God, like, how do you do this? I just can't imagine um, having gone through that. And, and, I'm assuming your father trying to have sex with you. I'm, I can only imagine he was, you know, high or drunk yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, did you, so after that experience, did you just leave? Yeah. So I just left and I didn't talk to him for 20 years. Um, I just couldn't, I was, um, rightfully f- felt victimized. Um, even though I wasn't a victim because I was like, screw you, get away from me. I'm out of here. But he crossed a line, which when that line is crossed as a child, like that violation really gets stored directly in your body. Like, yeah. you know, it really, it really does get stored in there. So that took me to college. And in college I thrived because I was independent and I was learning and I was defining myself. And like, I was in a sorority at Syracuse and then the priest would come knock on my door and have a work meeting. And I'd get so much shit for that. People would be like, Wilcox, the priest is out the door for you. (laughs) And so I loved that dichotomy of who I was, you know, I was like running the church and, um, you know, dancing on the bars in the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I love that. That sounds, yeah, yeah. That, that, that feels accurate. <laughs> right? That's me. I mean, that's really the epitome of me. And I think that's why I've been able to bridge spirituality to people because I have that irreverence in me. Um, and I've never lost it because there's this very human experience that when we're on this path of awakening, sometimes we get too serious and sometimes we want to pretend that we're not this human with all these wacky processes yeah. and patterns, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd love to begin talking about, I guess, like continuing on your journey and how you, you started teaching and, and where that, um, yeah. You got there, but I also want to dive into then like when the trauma work started for you. So wherever, like 
wherever you that feels natural to you, start work, start wherever. Okay. So the trauma work actually started through therapy, you know, years, decades of therapy early on of really trying to know myself and express myself. And so even though part of my platform right now is that therapy doesn't heal trauma, I do believe we need to have a decade or so of therapy of really getting sick of hearing our own stories <laughs> so that we're ready to bust them up and start to shift the belief systems. But the one one very profound thing that happened to me is I went from undergrad straight into grad school. It was a one-year intensive uh, master's of public administration program also at Syracuse. And um, God knows how I got into that program because I bombed my GREs, but somehow I had an interview and I talked my way into this program. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there was merit. I had a good GPA, but um, so... I was in this program, it was an intense one-year master's program, and everybody was starting to get their jobs, and I wasn't getting a job. I wasn't getting a job offer, and I was starting to get worried, and I was at the library because we didn't have, like, computers at that time, and... I was at the library and there was this old man and we were chatting it up and he was making photocopies and we're talking about, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but before he leaves, he like takes this little packet that he was photocopying and he plopped it on my lap. And this is in, I think, 1997, 98. This is before the movie, The Secret. This is before any of that came out. <clears throat> and this little packet said, whatever you want in your life, write it down to the most specific detail. Number two was something like, read it three times a day. And number three was something like, poof, all your dreams will come true. And I was like, well, I got nothing to lose. I got two weeks of, of Christmas break here. So I took that packet home and I did it. I did it for the two, two to four weeks of Christmas break during my graduate year. And I wrote down what I wanted with my body and how much I wanted to weigh and how I wanted my mental health to be and what kind of man I wanted in my life. And it like had stuff like I wanted him to be maternal and not too into sports, like really random stuff on my want list for a husband. Um, meanwhile, I had chalked up the fact that I would be with someone so practice this for two weeks. I shove it in my um, nightstand at my, my mother's house. This is back into my parents' house um, because things had healed enough for me to go back there for that break. Mm -hmm. And a year later, during Christmas, I open up that nightstand and I read that note that I had written. And sure as hell, I was with my fiance. I was... I had the job offer that I wanted. I had, you know, really gotten myself at peace with my body. And it was my first entree into law of attraction and what it is to manifest your reality. Um, so this was many years ago. This is like 15 years ago for me. And it completely opened what it was that I knew was possible in life. Um, so that was a major part of my path because it was like someone gave me the keys to my life. Someone gave me my power back in that moment at whatever, 22 years old, 23 years old. And soon after, again, like I really manifested this man. He is in his heart. He is like just an extraordinary person. Um, 
And I didn't need him. Like I just, my heart desired him. And there's a difference between attracting someone from your deficiency and what you don't have versus attracting someone from what your heart just desires most, which is to have Mm. someone. I didn't have anyone my whole life, right? I just wanted someone to share my life with. So So what were you doing for work at this time? What's that? What were you doing for work? Well, that's interesting because my work evolved into doing management consulting for um, Girl Scouts headquarters or the U.S. Department of Labor. We were in Washington D.C. and finally ended up at the internal, um, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank doing strategic planning. So internal strategic planning, which was kind of cool because, like five years later, after this law of attraction experience, I find myself doing goal setting, visioning, values, mission for organizations. And what I found was that all I needed to do was to get a group of people aligned with what their hearts wanted for an organization. And like that, the organization started to shift. And so now I'm looking at more systems-based law of attraction through developing all these hard skills. And I hated the work. I really, I didn't like working in a professional atmosphere because there's no heart, there's no emotions in business, right? You have to put on a facade and pretend that you're someone that you're not. And for me, I was kind of a bumbling idiot because I just couldn't do that. I was too much of an Mm spiritually sensitive person. Mm -hmm. But man, that was 10 years in management consulting built so many of the hard skills that I needed to be able to be a spiritual entrepreneur, to bring my spiritual business out into the world. I needed every single one of those experiences to do so. Yeah. So how did you, so when did you, from there, how did you, cause I know you traveled to India, like how did your spiritual journey then continue to? Yeah. So I actually didn't uh, travel to India. Interestingly, I, um, my next stop on that road was having my first, uh, baby. So my husband and I went to Sedona, Arizona for a weekend. We weren't going to have kids. I didn't want kids. I thought I'd screw them up. So we go to Sedona and it was like, when in Rome, go to a psychic, right? Like when in Rome, like when in Sedona, go to a psychic. So I go to the psychic and, and I'm just kind of like thinking it's stupid at this point. And he's, he turns out it's a shaman. And I have this like, I don't know, 20 minute appointment. He's like, so you want kids or something about kids? And I'm like, nope, don't want kids. And I'm not giving him any information at this point. And he's like, well, there's something here. He's like, and he, what he does is he takes me on what I thought was an inner child rescue. Now I know it was a soul retrieval. So he takes me on a soul retrieval. And then I like in the midst of it, I'm judging it and thinking it's super corny because there's power animals. And I'm just like, oh, please, dude. And then the other part of me is going back and getting a part of myself. And my whole body starts convulsing with tears and snot running out of my nose. And like, I was just really something shifted in me. And my husband was worried. He's like, what the hell did that guy do to you? And then we went we got Thai food and we went out to dinner or we went and got a glass of wine. And I looked at him square in the face that night. And I'm like, let's make a baby. And he was like, right. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> I literally were on the plane way back. And I was like, wow, that was crazy. What were we thinking? Right. 
Um, but there was this, this like moment of alignment, I think that happened. And nine months later, I've got this Sedona red haired baby that comes, comes into our lives and pretty much rocks my entire world because now I have to develop a part of my heart that just really had never been developed. And I have to mm. be the person that I always wanted my mother to be. And, um, and that's why my three girls really rocked me, awakened me spiritually. Um, and then sometime later, um, a friend of mine, am I going into too much detail? I'll, I'll make this yeah, quick, but I a friend of it. mine, I okay, a friend it. of mine. So now I've got three kids. Uh, my third baby is, is born and a friend of mine dies of breast cancer. And after her death, I felt like there was a bat in my room and I was spooked all the way down to my core. I'm like, is she with me? Am I being haunted? What the hell is happening? Like, it was a terrible experience of like, it was just two days after she had died and I was just really rocked. It was really, really rocked. So I started asking the big questions of like, who is the divine and what is on the other side of the veil? It, it just opened a portal to me of like, when I was out of her casket, I was like, she's dead. She's, her body's here, but she's not here. So what was she if she's not her body? Like mm -hmm. it rocked me. And then soon one of my spiritual teachers came to town and she was simple and she was direct. And I was like, oh, and that's when I started to find yoga and yogic meditation. And that was when, um, you know, as many people on the yogic path, I was kind of rocked into really what the next decade of, um, the exploration to my body. So that's where my path of becoming a yoga teacher and a meditation teacher and taking all this work so much more deeply combined with law of attraction. Um, what happened years later after training yoga teachers is that people started to ask me to do sessions with them. And I'm like, no, I'm too controlling to do sessions. You don't want to do sessions with <laughs> me. And they're like, no, really, Kim, can you start working with me? And I was like, okay. So I'm doing law of attraction with people and I'm finding that they like get themselves aligned and they're all ready to attract whatever the man they would desire, yet their life patterns show up really hard. And so I would be in session with them and I'd be like, all right, divine, show me, show me what we need to do to help this person release this. Like my will and my desire was right there. And I knew that they could be healed because I knew I was sitting here healed after 30 years of healing myself. And so the divine, after hundreds of these sessions started to show me like a 10 step process and it was through trial and error, a 10 step process to be able to get into the deepest part of these people. And what I would find is that we're at, we're at, they're five years old and their father hit them for the first time and they're devastated. And then I'm like, Oh, okay. Or what do we do next divine? <laughs> like, what, what, what next boss? Like I just kept, I just kept following the lead until I had done so many of these sessions that a clear process had been shown to me. Now I didn't assume like I was the chosen one. I assumed that something like this had to exist. And when I looked out into the world, I didn't see any of it. The closest thing that I saw was the ancient shamanic technique of soul retrieval. And that wording resonated with me, even though what I was shown was not typical shamanic soul retrieval, but it was the retrieval of the parts of self that was kind of um, 
fragmented off at a young age. And Mm -hmm. so I was given that process and I called it the inner alignment soul retrieval process. And, And I implemented that and I started to see people heal, but it didn't stick. And so then what I realized was as I researched the neuroscience of healing is you could have this great aha and build these new neural pathways. But if you don't practice these new vibrations in your body that are done through the healing, then after a few days, those new neural pathways will truncate and the feeling of healing will get lost through the brain and the body. So it was then that I started to put together, like we can do this soul retrieval work. We can go back into the past and heal the trauma that was created at these very primitive experiences. But unless we anchor and rewire it into every layer of the body over the course of two months, because that's how long it takes to build new neural pathways, new body chemistry, new neurotransmitter receptors. So unless we do that in a way that really anchors it in, then people will rehabitualize back to the old patterns, even if the healing did occur at a deeper layer of the body. So that's how this work was formed. It was really just kind of continuing to look up to the divine to show me what I needed to do to help people. And it came from the desire to, and and the understanding that we don't have to stay stuck. Like, like the, we're not put on this earth so we can flail around with our banging our head up against the wall. Like that's Mm. our divine birthright is our healing in my belief system. Mm. You know, it's something that you say in, um, a lot of the daily meditations that you, that you lead, uh, I think is so powerful and important is, um, thy will, not my will. Can Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit more about that within law of attraction and just divine in general? Yeah. So we are these radiant beings. We are a soul. We are the light. We are the divine. We know that in concept, those of us who have been on our spiritual path, but we feel so bogged down by all this stuff, right? All the trauma, all the negative thoughts, all the negative emotions, all the hysteria, all all of it by our, you know, monthly cycle. Like we just get bogged down, right? And then we confuse ourselves with that paradigm of I'm not enough, I'm not good enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm never right. I'm a failure. All of these, I call them flavors of unworthiness. And it's based on what chakra, at what layer of the body, what energetics are out of balance, what karma you came in with, right? Like all of this is kind of set up in this matrix of who we are. But that's not who we are. Those are like like veils or those are blankets of heavy stuff that's covering the truth of who we are. We are divine. We are divine consciousness, but our ego sets up a whole thing of how do we navigate to keep safe. And it's all based on what we need to control outside of us so that we can feel safe inside. And that is in the yogic system, illusion or Maya just not true. Like if I make my husband love me so I can feel loved, I am no more love, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm dependent on him for my love, but I'm still feeling the unworthiness of love, uh, not being unlovable or unworthy of love. 
So the ego mind and all of these um, imprints that are within our being keep us stuck in this illusion that we are not enough. So this ego and these belief systems are kind of our ego belief systems. And so I could say, I want a husband so I could feel worthy of love, but that's my ego desire. There may be a soul desire underneath that, which is, I really want to share my life with someone. I'm ready to love someone. I'm ready to receive that love. I'm ready to evolve my soul, right? That's more of the soul desire, the higher consciousness desire. So if we can hand our lives over to our own higher consciousness, so if we can surrender all of what the mind and the ego desires and really relax into what our heart desires, what the sacred heart within us desires, life gets really freaking juicy, like really juicy. And we get to start co-creating with our higher self and we get to create abundance and do our life purpose and just really start to play with the abundance that's available to us mm -hmm. in life. Mm -hmm. Not my will, not my small will, but thy will, but my higher will. Right. Cause that's why I think so many people, well, I guess I should speak for myself. Um, you know, oftentimes there, there have been times in my life that I've thought that I wanted something, that I needed something from my own will. And then, you know, it turns out down the line that that's not what I actually <laughs> needed. You know, it's so often in a relationship, like it, that's that I feel like that's where it always shows up for me is like in a breakup. It's like, no, but this person is my person. <laughs> and then you realize down the road, you're like, oh, right. That was that was divine. That was the divine stepping in, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. So how did you then begin to kind of, I'm curious about your transition into like moving into the spiritual work full time. I'm also curious about, um, I'm curious about how your husband took your transition. Was there any like, uh, mm -hmm. resistance there from him? Because I feel like at least, I guess, again, in my own relationship, I guess in my last relationship, like my partner was really kind of pushing, actually the last couple of relationships, they really pushed up against this, like, oh, you've changed. Who are you? What's happening with like the spiritual transfer yeah. transformation? And that's really common, I think. Well, I think this is the difference between attracting someone from your heart and your soul versus attracting someone who checks the boxes that your ego thinks you want or need, Right. Mm -hmm. So if I say, I want a man who makes a lot of money and he's really attractive and um, he's outdoorsy, let's say those are my top things, then I could get exactly that from the universe, but he may be lacking a heart and acceptance and love, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So the mind isn't the best place to be attracting from. Glenda Green's book, Love Without End, is my favorite book. It's a Jesus channeling. And what it says is anything that we attract from our ego will eventually dismantle and dissolve. But that which we attract from our hearts lives within us forever. 
And so when we magnetize something from our heart, from our soul's desires, then it has staying power. And even if that person dies, those adamantine particles, those particles of love that I attracted from that person will continue to live in the present moment because anything that you love, you take with you. So when you ask the question of my husband, remember, he was my first soul attraction. He was the first thing I manifested from my heart's desires. So when that's the case, mm-hmm. then you can trust that when your soul grows, if it's a soul connection, then um, it will be win, win, win. You hear me say this all the time. When we, when we bring the divine into our lives, Things will fall apart. Things that are made from the ego will dissolve and fall apart, no doubt. But the things that are meant to stay will stay because they have the lasting part, the lasting power of the heart. So my husband, like as I would evolve and did, you know, soul work, then I wanted to expand my love with him. And that was win-win for him too. Or as I took the leap to kind of, pull back. Like when I had my first kid, I couldn't do daycare. I just couldn't, I I had to take care of her, even though I sucked at it. I didn't have any patience. I didn't really like to play with kids. (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. not a natural mom, but I knew I had to be home for her and with her to expand myself. And so there goes my professional salary. Right. And that was like a downer Mm -hmm. for my husband. But he valued the expansion of our family too. So he adjusted. Or when I went to part-time work because I needed to cry on the couch after my third daughter, after my third daughter went to school, I like begged her to go into preschool. I'm like, can you please take her at two? When she got to preschool, I literally, literally spent that whole year crying on the couch, just releasing and processing and feeling and going through my up-leveling before I started to be of really deep service to other people. Mm. And so he, he wasn't happy about like the fact that I wasn't going to be making really any money, but I said, just give me nine months give me nine months to do this for myself. And, and what came of it is I got bored. It's really funny when you have children nowadays, they have technology, but when children get bored, they get imaginative, they create. And what happened was my soul started to want to birth things. I started birthing retreats and programs and meditation things and law of attraction things. Um, and I did it because I was begging the divine to put me to work. It was like, coach, put me in. I'm ready. Put me in. Like, and my soul was burning for it. And I was doing it for peanuts, really, not for much money, but because my soul really needed to to be of service in this way. And that was when I was learning and doing all these sessions with people. And I was just discovering and questioning and it was a really time of growth for me. And then once I knew what my gifts were, then I had to work on really feeling okay, asking for what my value was in the world. And that was a big transition too, knowing your worth, knowing what you bring, knowing what results you bring into the world. And so 
that definitely evolved for me. And um, when I put my work online is when things started to expand exponentially. Mm. And it was at that point that I developed, I had an inner program, like an inner healing and transformation program, but I started to develop a coaching program so that other people could bring this work out into the world. And then I started mm. to train other soul retrieval healers. And then I started to see the system and the expansion of this work. And that's where I'm at right now is I have this vision of therapy being like I really want to awaken the therapists in the world so that they can bring this soulful six-layered work into their practice. They're the people on the front lines. So yoga teachers mm-hmm. and therapists and people who are already in the place of helping others heal can awaken into their radiance and their truth so that they can create the ripple on the front lines and so that they're not depleted at the end of the day because they're being re-traumatized by watching other people go through their trauma. And -hmm. I think that's what's happening is that there's so much depletion for the people who are healing others because they haven't really cleaned out their trauma and their the trauma packets that live within their body resonate with the trauma packets in their clients. And they're having, if you don't mind me going into this, I believe that the trauma that we take on and as children is like fire in the basement of the house and it blows up smoke into the upper floors. And so we do yoga and we meditate and we go to therapy and we go to Reiki and we do all of these things that help blow the smoke out of the upper floors. But the fire is still there because the trauma and the soul fragmentation is still happening. It's still experienced in the body. So that's my vision is to help more people learn how to put that fire out so that the suffering on the planet can start to become reduced. And so that we can face our shadow and the parts of us that we don't like and fully embrace those parts and be like unapologetic about the aspects of us that... Mm -hmm you know, are not our highest, most spiritual awakened places within us. And I think that level of self-acceptance, you know, being unapologetic for the wholeness of who we are is what most spiritual paths are lacking. Well, it's interesting because I think that so many people, um, you know, talking about this kind of shadow, they're afraid of it, right? Like, like people are afraid to go there. Yeah. Um, but there's so much talk about, um, and so much of what I've learned is like the, the, you know, you do, you have to kind of bring the light to the shadow. And I'd love for you to talk about kind of the importance and the balance of those two things. Because I think that again, from my own experience, there's always been this like pushing away, pushing away. I don't want to look at it like this, avoiding, uh, avoiding the shadow, avoiding that pain, avoiding that discomfort when that's really kind of where we need to turn. Yeah. Well, you know, if we, nowadays the spiritual path is everybody's trying to get into 5D, right? Like it's just mm-hmm. love and light your way through things. But yet we look out in the world and like the world is literally collapsing. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, um, it's kind of, delusional to, to just be in love and light world because it's only half of the story. 
we are physical beings. We have egos. We have all these distorted belief systems. We have this trauma that came into our body at a very young age and has lived there and is kicking up our thoughts and our emotions and our unworthiness, right? Mm -hmm. So this is just the truth of what's going on. You know, it's funny, Yogi Bhajan said that we have a positive mind and we have a negative mind. And ideally, we want to pan out into a more neutral space. So like, if you look at me, I'm really a fiery person. I'm an Aries with an Aries rising and I have a lot of fire in my constitution, right? I'm all fire. And so I can transform people's lives. I can activate passion. I can be charismatic. I have all these gifts from that fiery aspect of how my soul is expressed in this world. But when I lose alignment with myself, like if I get, if I get upset about something or if I get scared or if my ego feels like it's in scarcity, I need to control something. Like if I tip out of balance with my heart and I go into my ego, all of this show, fire shows up in a really ugly way. I'm controlling, yeah. I'm judgmental, I'm perfectionistic, I'm a bitch, I am uh, like a, a, a brat, I, I, I'm not nice, right? Mm-hmm. So fire, when it's unbalanced, it ain't pretty. And you and I could sit here and be like, yeah, there's that piece. It's not pretty. But when you come up with me and it doesn't happen so much because I work really hard to keep myself in alignment, but you know, the planets can trigger something. The weather can trigger something, you know, um, we moved from the East coast to the West coast. That was like, like pulling my root chakra out from under me, like at those critical points when that happens and I get imbalanced, it ain't pretty. So Am I willing to really feel in my body how awful that feels? And in that space of how awful and horrid, like, because all I want to do is bring goodness into this world, right? Like that's my sole desire is to, is to bring goodness and help people see who they are. But if I am like drenched in the horrid of who I am, then obviously I can't do that. And obviously I feel like a hypocrite for what I'm trying to do. So I have to feel the depth and it feels like death in our bodies when we're faced with those parts of ourselves that we, it it feels like the worst thing. But I've gone through, you know, layer after layer of feeling that part of myself so I could start to lessen the punishment, the self-punishment and the self-hate and all of those, that resistance that we build up with ourselves. And as I've done that, it's really interesting because this will show up as a mom. Like if I'm fiery, then I yell at my kids. When I yell at my kids, I feel like the parent that yelled at me and I hate myself, right? Mm-hmm. So if I can start to really forgive myself and be with myself and know that there's something going on underneath that yelling, that needs to be tended to and loved and cared for within myself, then I drop a layer of hate, which is the self-hatred, and then I can be with myself enough to put the aloe on my own wound so I can look at my kids and be like, I'm so sorry. I just totally lost alignment. Yeah. Yeah. Please forgive me. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I think that one of the most two things I learned through doing the work with you is exactly what you're talking about is 
like learning about the, I like, I love that you bring the Ayurveda in because learning about the doshas and like, and how those can become imbalanced was so helpful for me. Um, but also something that I think is lost often in so much spiritual practice is this kind of grounded, rooted embodiment. And as someone, as you know, who has a lot of anxiety, mm-hmm. I realized how disconnected I was from my, from like the earth and from my body and from, from my lower chakras. Yeah. Um, and so I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about uh, about that and the importance of um, of staying grounded and staying rooted because you and I have had this conversation ourselves. But how much it, and it, can, it can at times actually be quite dangerous if you're like experimenting and all of this stuff and trying to find your way if you are not grounded and you are only in your upper chakras and you're like totally out in space, which is often where I. <laughs> It's really true. So now we're talking about a couple of things. The first is your Ayurvedic dosha, right? So if we just like simplify it down, most people have uh, a dominance of specific energies. And for me, I have a lot of fire, but free. And so anger is where I'll default to. Whereas you had a, a lot of imbalance of air. You have so much air in your constitution and air people will go to anxiety and panic panic attacks. So people with anxiety are lacking. If you have a lot of air, then you're lacking that grounding and that anchoring into this world. And if you have that imbalance, it's really hard to function. It's hard to adult if you have an imbalance of air in your constitution. And so if we take that into the shadow qualities, um, then someone with air, um, well, let's look at the gifts. I mean, they're expressive and they're, they're usually connected spiritually or to the upper chakras, to the heart, to their truth, to their, to their source. Um, they're usually adventurous and playful and spontaneous and creative and, you know, expressing on through dance or through art or through music or so those are the gifts, right, of someone with air. But once they get out of balance, they're, they feel pretty unhooked and unsafe often because the lower chakras are really not anchored in. So in that way, to be able to be safe in the unsafety and to learn how to work yourself back into that space versus go into resistance when you're scared. Often we resist the resistance. So if I'm feeling ungrounded and unsafe, then I'll resist that feeling of unsafe. And now I'm in resistance to myself and I can't even help myself. Right. Mm. And for those who have a lot of, a lot of earth or too much earth in their constitution, they may go to heavy depression and like go to overeating or over Netflixing or getting really attached to their people or their stuff. And those people are, when they're balanced, are like the most loyal, um, uh, juicy, fun. Um, these are the people that I love in my life. Like the earthy That's people, great. they value their friendships. They're so loyal. They're easygoing, right? These are the gifts of someone with earth. But when imbalanced, um, they sink 
they sink into a place of real Eeyore energy and feel stuck. So we, each of us, earth, fire, air can get stuck. Most of us are, we have all of these elements. It's just, which is imbalanced. And often the shadow or the struggle comes from the imbalance or the lack of understanding of ourselves in that way. Yeah. And that, I mean, who knew that Ayurveda, a 5,000-year-old, right? Is it 5,000 years old? Yeah, a 5,000-year-old practice. So through the inner alignment work, we do soul retrieval work to get into the trauma and clean that up. And then we anchor that work in through Ayurvedic practices, through meditation practices, through different spiritual practices. And we work all six layers of the body back into that place of feeling safe, like for you, feeling safe, mm-hmm. or for me, feeling grounded and feeling like a good person, or for for whatever it is, then we work with the physical body, the energetic body, the thoughts, the emotions, the spiritual awareness, the getting you back into your bliss, and that's that needs to be wired back in. Um, while mm-hmm. you're doing that soul work, that working with that fragmentation. And because of what we know with neuroscience, it needs to be done very intensively over a short amount of time. Otherwise you're, you're playing whack-a-mole. You get something healed and then it pops up on a different layer of the body, or you get something cleaned up and then it's showing up in a different part of your life, right? So to do it through intensive work, I don't know why other than the neuroscience of it. And really through law of attraction, if you focus on your healing intensively every single day and you have a loving team of three people who are also so focused on your healing, the intensity of that intention and everybody's attention to healing is what calls it in and makes it so. So, so that piece I think is very important too. Yeah. Yeah. That was to me as someone who's done a lot of work, um, you know, I loved having the eight week process, but also having the team, because there's a team of you who um, I was on text with 24 hours a day, and maybe you didn't respond immediately, but it was just having the, and I, I said this to you, I so many times I feel, but having this sort of container of what felt like unconditional love mm-hmm. um, to just say what whatever, to text you guys whenever I was triggered or, or an- anxious, um, and for you to just receive it and be able to hold me in that space and to know that someone was there on the other end, um, listening and, and holding that space for me was so powerful. But I also know that it was important for you guys. Like that's how you were gathering your information. So, so I I find that interesting over the course of the eight weeks and super powerful that like, you know, every time I was texting you, you were like, okay, you, you were able to then really, uh, pinpoint exactly what my triggers were, where kind of my weaknesses were, Mm -hmm. um, so that when we would go into session, then we could get really, really specific and really clear. Totally. And we could work your belief systems while you were in an issue or while you were recovering from an issue so that we could get in there while it's live, (laughs) you know, while, while you're in that, um, 
pain body or in that struggle. But you're absolutely right. Like over the eight weeks, we do soul retrieval and then we come out and then we see what's shifted in you and what's left. And then we take what's left and we take that into the next session so that we're peeling away the onion very intensively. And you could see it like um, there may be an issue. Let's say someone has an issue around men and then all of a sudden they're not reacting to the men in their life anymore. And now this new issue has surfaced and that's our next layer of work. And then, and that's, that's how, I mean, the divine is, is doing all the healing. The divine is doing the work, but we're just shining the flashlight, like saying, okay, divine work there. Okay. Divine now work there. And to do that in a container of love, which sounds a little corny, um, but like, we all know that love heals. We all know that God is love. We all know that that frequency of love, the fifth dimensional frequency of the heart is the space where the healing can happen. And this is really the practice of that. And it's an impersonal kind of love. It's not like romantic love. It's kind of like, I am in my heart and I love your heart. And I don't even have to really know you. I just need to feel you or have a conversation with you so that that can happen. That's hard to explain because most people have never experienced that love. But once your heart is activated, then when you're activated, you start to activate the people around you and then the ripple occurs. Yeah. Well, and that's what I think is the most important is, is one of the most important aspects too, is that most of us are taught to, or that we receive, will receive love romantically and romantically only because most people didn't feel, um, uh, many people didn't feel seen or heard or, um, or like they had their emotional needs met or like they were loved unconditionally. So, so to, to have, a seeming stranger reflect that back to you and to know that we don't have to go seeking it in, um, in romance. Cause I think it's so often for women to believe that that's where we have to go to mm-hmm. find our work. Um, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I see romantic love as I'm a half and you're a half and together we make three quarters. And I see divine love as like, I am so whole and in my radiance and you are so whole in your radiance. And when we come together, it's like exponential divine ripple, (laughs) co-creative ripple. So I'd love to ask you, do you believe we can heal from, from anything from, yeah, actually from anything. Do you believe that we can heal from anything? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I've seen people who were molested their entire lives, who were parts of, um, really horrible, horrible, uh, ongoing traumas, um, heal like quickly. It doesn't have to be this long, like drawn out suffering process. Um, I believe healing's available for all of us. I will say the people who believe it's possible for them to heal will have it more accessible to them. Meaning if you don't believe you can heal, then you're probably going to have a hard time opening yourself to healing. Um, Or if you're committed to blaming someone else for your pain and staying in the blame model, 
then that's going to be kind of tricky to heal. So, so that's why the years of therapy can help because it can kind of chip away of like, okay, I'm the center of my life. I've recreated these patterns everywhere. So having a sense of responsibility for what we attract into our world makes it easier to heal. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. also easier to heal when you have divine source, when you have a connection or a relationship, even if it's to the earth, like nature, um, if there is a connection that, that makes it easier. It's not a deal breaker. It just makes it easier, easier because the pathway is open or the belief systems aren't blocking the healing. Because really when we look at healing, everyone can heal. It's just how much resistance you have to your healing. Healing's your divine birthright. Healing is your base state if your mind and your body and your way of life wasn't blocking it. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So it, essentially it's, it's like these, as you call them trauma packets that keep us in these stuck in these neural pathways that keep us sort of retelling ourselves these stories that are not even true. <laughs> right that then play out to create this sort of, um, I was going to say unease, but you could say disease, disease, yeah. or disease, whoever it shows up for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. However, I mean, right. It could show up on your physical body as disease. It could be mental illness. It could be, you know, hysteria, <laughs> like, um, it could show up in any way. I think having your heart, really desiring, you know, like I did when I was over the toilet, when I decided, okay, no more of this, like that decision. And then being able to push through the fear or the scarcity or what the ego will start to drudge up as you walk toward healing. This is very interesting. I have conversations with people before they come into our work to make sure it's a good fit to make sure they're ready. Cause this is really the last stop on the train. Right. So, um, so I have conversations to listen, to see. Um, and what I find is as soon as someone gets close to this work, every belief system, all the gunk in their energy field will rear itself pretty loudly. And just about any excuse the ego can come up with will come up with it. Um, whether you have a struggle of unworthiness or scarcity or whatever it is, it will show up and get loud. So that soul fire, that will to heal and the trust in the universe that if my soul says, I want to heal that trust that the universe will line up, it will move mountains for my healing. And there's a trust that goes with that. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, that does. Well, I'm sure that several people listening to this are going to be wondering how on earth they get in touch with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, <laughs> so I think for people to, who want, um, to decide whether this type of work is, is work that they want to do, um, the best way to connect with me, I suppose, is to send an email <laughs> and schedule a time. Um, and we can connect to discuss whether this work is, it's the right time and it's the right work. 
Um, and I also have started doing a very limited number of single soul retrieval sessions, which I haven't done in the past because I really believe that the the two-month process is the way to heal. And I don't want to put Band-Aids on anyone's trauma anymore. Like it was a decision I made years ago, but I have opened up a limited number of those sessions as well. So, so that's the next step is to be in touch with me, to set up a time to connect. I'll send a calendar link and then, um, and then just take it from there. Amazing. Another great way. I think if people are, are, um, are curious and, and, you know, want to hear more from you. You also just opened up the daily live meditations, right? To whomever yeah. wants to join. Absolutely. Yes. So my daily live meditations, and I do have a handful of recordings. These are free. I try to keep a good part of what I do in Seva service. So Monday through Friday at 12 PM Eastern time is when the daily meditation is, and there's a group of about 20 or 30 of us that get together every day. And we like literally work something deeply and, um, shift ourselves into a really beautiful space, a pocket of energy, uh, high frequency together. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I've taken part in them and it is really, really special. So what I'm going to do is put the link to that in the, like in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so that people can join that. I'll also put your email in there so that anyone can email you. You don't really do the whole social media thing. You do a little bit on Facebook, but that's for Pete for students really. Right. Yeah. I'm really kind of like just bottled up in the corner trying to work people's trauma. I'm not, I'm don't, I don't have a lot of personality out there. Um, on Facebook, I do have, um, some, uh, a, a webinar that people could watch. Um, so we can put a link there to the replay of that online training as well. And I do some Ayurvedic psychology online, um, training for people who want yoga, uh, yoga Alliance, continuing education units. So that's another pathway in to learn about this stuff intellectually. What I find is people often want to learn more from their mind. And this is not about the mind. It's not about learning anymore. Everything that I've shared is pretty much all you need to know. And then the next step is to do your work. Um, yeah. It sounds pretty blunt, but it's true. And this is vibrational work. This is going into the crevices of your cave and really cleaning out the basement so that you can uh, cut the anchors of trauma out of your body and actually feel your bliss body, Ananda Mayakosha, the part of you that lives in bliss already. Mm. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you um, so much, Kelly. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm so, what an amazing conversation. I knew it would be a good one. So I'm really excited <laughs> to get it out there. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for getting it out there. This is how we change the world, right? <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode with Kim. I've put all of her information in the show notes if you want to get in touch with her. And I highly recommend that you do. Now, as I mentioned, I'm going to tell you about a woman from history whose name you all definitely know. However, the story that you think you know has been wrongly told in a massive way. Today, I'm retelling the true story of Pocahontas. I'm actually a descendant of John Smith, and 
on a personal level, I feel incredibly deeply connected to Native American history. I believe that's probably some kind of past life thing. So it feels really important for me to to tell this story in its truth. Pocahontas' story has been glorified and romanticized. Most of us know it as a romantic story uh, from Disney. Uh, and it's really told through the white man's lens, as much of our country's history has, which is really a huge disservice to her, to all Native Americans, and to the truth of American history, much of which was missing from my history books. I've certainly learned of so many events, especially through this Black Lives Matter movement this year, of, of events that I just had never had never heard about that that are huge and and shocking. So I did as much, re- as much research as I could to get this as correct as possible. Um, there's a lot of conflicting information about what her true story is, so I have done my best, and please forgive me if any of it is incorrect. Um, a lot of history was whitewashed, so it can be difficult to find precise information, especially on an event that happened over 400 years ago. But I have done my best. So Pocahontas was born in 1596 in what is now the area of Jamestown, Virginia. She was the daughter of a very powerful and famous leader who ruled over 30 tribes and was kind of considered um, a princess uh, within within the, the, the local tribes. Um, when the English colonists arrived in 1607, she was only about 10 years old. Uh, John Smith was closer to 27 years old and they were never actually married as the movie, you know, the whole movie was about the two of them. However, he was apparently captured by her tribe and the two did forge, forge a friendship. Um, she did marry a man from her tribe who she had a child with, but was later captured by a colonist called Samuel Argall, who intended to use her as a trade for his Englishmen who were captured by the natives. Now, this is where things get a little murky. Many stories say that an Englishman called John Rolfe fell in love with her once Argall had captured her and that she voluntarily converted to Christianity and changed her name to Rebecca. Um, that just doesn't feel quite right to me, considering the other stories that I read about. Um, I also read that uh, Argall captured her and killed her husband Um, and that, uh, she was involuntarily put on a boat to England. There are many claims that she was raped by several men on her journey. And when arriving to England, she was forced to convert to Christianity, change her name, which she did change to Rebecca. That is true. Um, and she had to learn English customs and she was essentially used as a pawn to prove to the King of England that the relationship between the colonists and the natives was going well and that the natives, uh, or as they called them savages were essentially submitting to England and taking on their customs, et cetera, et cetera. So after fulfilling her duties, those duties, she apparently convinced her husband, John Rolfe, to allow her and her son that she had had with him to return to America. But she mysteriously died after dinner one night um, of a, what, what Rolfe says was tuberculosis, um, but it was believed that she was actually poisoned. Um, she was 21 years old and, um, she was buried and still remains in Kent, England, uh, which is an area just Southeast of London. 
that was new information to me that completely blew my mind and honestly makes me want to like figure out a way to move her body from England to um to Virginia but apparently the church that she was buried near uh burnt down and so they don't know exactly where her body is um but her story is just another prime example of a strong ambitious woman who suffered oppression and whose life was completely ruined by the darkness that exists within patriarchy and within white history um in every story that I read about she was just this incredibly um like I said ambitious strong rambunctious uh confident woman um so I want to honor her and her family and her culture and her life that was lost and to honor all Native Americans who have suffered the deep oppression of white power in this country. Um, something else I'd like to address is the term Indian. Uh, it was Christopher Columbus who first called the natives Indians because he thought that he'd arrived in India. Um, and there are still several tribes who to this day are okay with that term and call themselves Indians. However, clearly they are not Indian and, um, a much more appropriate and accurate term is Native American or indigenous, indigenous American. Uh, I read from one historian who believes that we should actually call them Americans and that we should adopt English American, Irish American, Italian American, etc. The point is, is that they were here first. So uh, I hope that this story um, allows you or forces you to take some time to reflect on what you just heard versus the story that you were given through Disney um, and perhaps think about what other pieces of American history have been whitewashed in that way. Um, so I thank you for listening, as always. And if you have any questions or reflections, you can email or DM me.